It's the NACOcasts coming to you, as always, from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. My name is Christopher Millard. Author and Maclean's Magazine columnist Paul Wells was recently invited to open the National Arts Centre Orchestra's Mozart Haydn Festival on its Musically Speaking series of pre-concert talks. While most of us know Paul as one of the foremost political commentators in Canada, he may be unfamiliar to many in his love and knowledge of classical music and jazz. We were happy to present his very refreshing take on the subject of our featured composers in a talk entitled Haydn and Mozart, The Gentleman and the Prodigy. I hope you enjoy Paul's talk as much as our patrons did on opening night. So here from the Salon of the National Arts Centre in Ottawa, Paul Wells. Thank you all for coming out tonight here to the Salon of the NAC. Um, I'm gratified that there are so many of you, but I'm worried that there might be a little misunderstanding. I want to make it clear right off the bat that I am not Emmanuel Axe. <laughs> so he starts in an hour in the bigger room. So if, you're, if you've come onto the wrong flight, it's still, you can still escape. Uh, I am Paul Wells. Uh, I'm a senior columnist at McLean's Magazine. Although, if you read closely on the masthead of the magazine, you'll notice that we list no junior columnists. So, it's all uh, harmless ego-stroking and has nothing to do with anything, so don't be alarmed. Um, and I'm here under essentially false pretenses. If you've come looking for a musicologist who will give you uh, exceedingly profound insights into the music that you're going to hear tonight, I must admit that I'm basically like one of you, except perhaps I have better connections, and so I was able to wrangle my a space at the front of the room. I'm just a guy who likes the, this music. As a matter of fact, I have been, for uh, most of my life, a great fan of uh, the music of Joseph Haydn. And uh, if I may admit, maybe a little slower to come around to the charms of, uh, of uh, Wolfgang Mozart, although I have, uh, uh, as, as one ages, one, one becomes wiser, and I have uh, now almost matched Maestro Zuckerman in my enthusiasm for the music of Mozart. Um, and although I, that's a, quite a task, because if you come here every night for the next week, you'll notice that, that Zuckerman likes him some Mozart, and you'll be hearing a lot over the next, uh, over the next several nights, with some Haydn thrown in. It is uh, entirely appropriate that here in the early 21st century we are celebrating the music of these two guys. As a matter of fact, if we had gone back to Vienna in 1790 and told them that in uh, more than 200 years, uh, we would be celebrating the music of two of their greatest composers. They would have, uh, a random person in the street would have gotten excited and said, of course you are, and I know exactly who it would be. And if we had said, yes, we're going to be celebrating the music of Spohr and Dittersdorf, they would have said, no, not them. And if we'd said, well, it's going to be the music of Hummel and Salieri, they would have said, no, they're good, but they're not the guys. They would have said, the people you need to be uh, celebrating in 200 years are Mozart and Haydn. 
Uh, it's not true that, uh, that these musicians toiled in obscurity and that their reputations grew over time. They were the rock stars of their era. And as a matter of fact, if you had asked either of those two who else we should be playing their music with in 200 years, Mozart and Haydn would have said, get the other guy. Even though they were very dissimilar personalities, even though they were born 24 years apart in different cities, they became, I have discovered as I prepared for this lecture, uh, two of the greatest friends in music. Uh, it is a beautiful story. It, uh, their affection for each other got them to act out of character sometimes. Everyone knows that Papa Haydn was the gentle old man who dressed up to uh, compose and, and who led a, 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 a court orchestra in a big palace and was always in a good mood and, and, and said that God has blessed me with a sunny disposition and so I hope he doesn't mind if I write sunny music. But there was one thing that uh, got him eventually to fly into a rage. Uh, everyone knows that Mozart was the great virtuoso. The musical ideas fl flowed out of his head like water. Uh, in the movie Amadeus, we see him saying to someone, the piece is all written, I just have to put it on paper because it was just so easy for him. And yet there was one thing that got him to doubt his own abilities. And in each case, what got these guys to act a little unusual uh, was his love for the other. What made uh, Haydn so angry that he himself wrote that he was enraged was the sense that Mozart was not recognized for his talent uh, as much as he should be. And what made Mozart doubt his abilities so much that he spent three years working on a, on a piece of music to get it just right was the sense that he wanted to make sure it was good enough for Haydn to hear. So this is uh, a love story, uh, and, 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 and it's in that spirit I want to tell it uh, to you. I want to give you a little bit of um, uh, biograph biographical detail of how these two guys came up in the world, because it, it shows how they became different personalities, one from the other. And I'll start with Haydn, because he was born first. He was born in 1732, in a little town near the border of Austria and Hungary. Uh, his father was a wheelwright who uh, um, had no musical training but liked to play the harp and sing folk tunes around the house. And early on, they discovered that little Joseph Haydn had a, had a, had a very sweet voice. And in those days, you, you did what you could to get, help your kid get ahead. So when he was six years old, he was apprenticed to a choir ma master in a little town seven miles away. And even though that distance doesn't seem like much to us now, uh, Haydn never lived with his family again. At six years old, he went off to, to, to make a kind of a, a life in music. It, it was unspectacular. Uh, at, eight, at eight years old, he became choir boy at St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna. He picked up a little keyboard, a little violin. Uh, he didn't really learn anything about composition at that age. Uh, he basically sang in the choir. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was... It was um, a way to stay busy, but it was nothing illustrious and nothing magical. And it kind of went downhill early. When he was 17 years old, two bad things happened. First of all, his voice started to break, which is trouble when you're a soprano in the choir. And secondly, he was a bit of a prankster. He uh, cut off the pigtail of another boy. Uh, and uh, that, and, and, and uh, since he was no longer much use as a singer, and since he was turning into a discipline problem, he got kicked out. He was evicted. At 17 years old, with no education uh, in anything except music, with no great education in music, he's on the street in Vienna trying to make a life as a musician. And he spent the next nine years on the street uh, living with friends, uh, picking up lessons here and there, freelancing, working dances, uh, giving lessons, busking on the street. 
Um, uh, and uh, he finally picked up a gig accompanying an, an Italian composer who finally taught him the craft and, and gave him counter bo counterpoint books to study. But this all happens fairly late in Haydn's life. Now, you have to imagine that in those nine years, he had more than his share of run-ins with shady characters, unscrupulous employers, cutthroat competitors, all the nasty situations that freelance musicians have been running into for centuries. This was not the high life. This was not sort of the cream of Viennese society. It was the underside. Um, and uh, so when at 25, he finally gets his first full-time job with a minor Hungarian aristocrat, uh, he must have clung to it like a life raft. And when three years later, uh, uh, he winds up kind of almost by accident as the vice Kapellmeister with the Esterhazy family, one of the richest in Europe, uh, it, must have just, it must have seemed like um, uh, his, his chance to finally have some stability. He hasn't seen his father or hasn't lived with his father. He would get the occasional visit since he was a kid. He hasn't had a steady job for nine years. Finally, uh, he's hired as the number two music director for the people who have the second biggest uh, palace in Europe after Versailles, uh, kind of the, the, the absolute cream of Viennese society. Uh, the terms of his contract are interesting, and they show both the heavy responsibility he faced and kind of the, the, the relatively uh, good circumstances he found himself living in. I'll quote you from, this, from his, uh, the contract that he was hired under. His Serene Highness graciously trusts that Mr. Haydn will, as befits an honest house officer, behave soberly, and to the musicians directed by him, not brutally but gently, modestly, calmly, and honestly, he will appear at all times clean and in livery, the sort of house uniform, and so on. Uh, so essentially he was hired to be middle management. For a man who hadn't lived at home since he was six, who was left to his own devices for most of a decade, it must have been heaven. He would stay with that family, traveling from summer home to winter home, writing for the palace's opera house and the puppet opera, uh, for court events and public orchestra concerts, managing an in-house orchestra, hiring musicians, letting them go when they weren't up to snuff, giving lessons to members of court for 30 years. It's one of the longest sort of uninterrupted stretches of musical productivity and musical affiliation uh, that, 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 that we know of. I've heard people compare it to Duke Ellington and his orchestra who stayed together for half a century. It, 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 you build a very rich relationship with your musicians and with your music when you're able to stay in one place for that kind of time. Uh, Haydn was a solicitous employer for his musicians. He was uh, the kind of guy who was willing to manage up and not just manage down. In other words, he would go to the boss uh, with concerns rather than just simply telling his underlings, this is what the boss wants you to do. One time they were at the summer home, uh, the summer residence for maybe a little bit longer than they normally were. And the musicians were missing their wives and families back home uh, at the winter residence, and they were starting to grumble a bit. And Haydn was wondering how he could tactfully uh, take this message to the Esterhazys. And he finally came up with an idea. He wrote a symphony, it was Symphony Number no. 45. And it ends with the musicians one by one. As the music is progressing, as the, as the, symphony, as the orchestra is playing, at one by one, the musicians get up and they blow out the candle that, that is lighting the music on their music stand, and they leave... And this happens, one musician after the other, after the other, after the other. And at the end, there's only two musicians left. Um, the, the two of the violin players playing a kind of a quiet little duet. There's no, no symphony had ever ended that way. And the visual cues were a little obvious, and it worked. The next day, 
Esterhazy, Nicholas Esterhazy, the head of the household, said, okay, we're heading home. The musicians are a little tired. So Haydn was a good boss to have. Um, and he, he took his obligations in an interesting and surprising way. I love this quote that is often uh, cited when people talk about how Haydn adjusted to his new life as a middle manager in the, 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 the biggest palace in Central Europe. He said, I was cut off from the world. There was no one to confuse or torment me, and I was forced to become an original. I love that quote because, of course, it's not accurate. He wasn't forced to become an original. There was nothing stopping him from being a hack. There was nothing stopping him from, on the seventh uh, week uh, Friday night symphony concert, sneaking in the symphony that he'd written six, six weeks ago. There, there, it wasn't the Esther Hazy court family that was going to notice the difference. There was nothing to stop him from uh, just grinding out stuff uh, week after week after week, the way studio... Uh, writers for TV commercials do to this day. Uh, he wasn't forced to become an original. It was in him. He had that light in him. He had that genius in him. He forced himself to become an original. And, uh, and, and by uh, a little later in my talk, he's the most famous musician in Europe, even though he's tucked away in this guy's house. Now, right about the moment when Haydn was starting to get really sick of life as a struggling freelancer, back in his mid-20s when he was freelancing and busking, Mozart was born in Salzburg in 1756. His father was a serious and well-regarded composer named Leopold Mozart. Even to this day, trumpet players play Leopold Mozart's very good trumpet concerto. He's, 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 uh, he was a serious cat. Uh, Leopold and uh, his wife, Anna Maria, had three children. They all died in infancy. Then they had a daughter, Maria Anna, Anna who was nicknamed Nanurl. She lived. The fourth child survived out of infancy. They had two more babies who also died in infancy. And then they had a seventh, Wolfgang, their seventh child and the second one to survive. Now, I don't know if you can imagine what it would have been like to lose five babies. I sure can't. And even though the Mozarts lived in a crueler time than ours, a more difficult time, their loss must have been almost impossible to bear. And so when they named the last kid Theophilus or Gottlieb, or Amadeus, the three words in three different languages mean beloved of God. Probably at first it was just a name to give the kid because they didn't know whether this one would live either. But over time, it must have seemed like an accurate name. And it must have seemed more and more appropriate when young Wolfgang Gottlieb, Theophilus Amadeus, turned out to be a kind of a miracle, which he did very early. Um, it is possible to overstate the extent to which Wolfgang Mozart was a prodigy. Uh, he had an early knack for music. He could play almost any instrument you gave to him. He could play by ear. He was writing pieces uh, um, at a very young age. He surprised his own father with his skill. But it's actually near the end of his teenage years uh, before the stuff he's writing is consistently excellent. Most of what you hear in concert is stuff that was composed by Mozart when he was in his 20s at least. Uh, this is not entirely unheard of in music. Saint-Saëns, uh, Mendelssohn were perhaps more successful early on uh, even than Mozart was. But who are we kidding? This, this, this would have been an extraordinary thing to watch in Salzburg or Vienna in the, in the middle part of the 1700s. This, this you know, five-year-old, eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 15-year-old kid who could play like nothing he ever saw and increasingly started to play his own music. What set him apart, I think, really, is, first of all, that he never stopped growing and deepening his talent. He wasn't, he wasn't just a, a, a prodigy who becomes a slightly tiresome has-been prodigy. He, he became a greater musician with every year that he spent on earth. 
And the other thing that set him apart, I think, is that he had a gift for melody, which I hope to be able to show you with some musical excerpts, that uh, nobody could match. Basically, around the time he stopped being a phenomenon as a child entertainer, he started to be worth your money as a real composer and a real performer. What he never really did have was a knack for getting along with people. His last steady work for a patron who would keep him on a salary and provide a budget for his projects, give him the kind of setup that Haydn had, uh, that situation only lasted for a few years in his teens and his early 20s. Mozart and his father spent that time working together as a team for the Archbishop of Salzburg. Uh, except they weren't really enjoying it. it they felt like, like they, that the steady work was holding them back. Wolfgang Mozart was already the toast of Europe. He could go anywhere he wanted and give a concert and draw a crowd and, and, and be lauded and, and welcomed and feted. Um, steady work was stifling because many had to turn down all of those gigs. So finally his father worked up his courage and he wrote to the archbishop and he said, you know, this guy Wolfgang, he's a rare talent. Uh, we need to share him with the world. And you know in the Gospels, it says talent mustn't be hidden. Uh, the archbishop let the two Mozarts stew for a few weeks, and then he sent an underling to tell them, in the name of the Gospels, that they were both fired. <laughs> so now we reach the point in our story where both of our heroes have arrived at their steady state, the state that they are now famous for. Haydn has achieved what he always wanted, which was stability. And Mozart has achieved what he really always wanted, even though it was more dangerous and riskier and sometimes uh, a little less rewarding financially, he's got his freedom. Different strokes for different folks. Each man's circumstance allowed him to really hit his stride. Now, I don't want to overstate this because neither man was small enough to fit into any kind of stereotype. Their talents were huge and they would surprise you every time you, you, you took a look at them. But to some extent, you can hear the way they lived in their music. Mozart's a virtuoso. He plays the keyboard and the violin brilliantly, and he writes for different circumstances every time he writes because he's writing for a different orchestra every time he writes. So he clings to that sense of the heroic virtuoso single voice. Um, he becomes especially skilled at writing for solo uh, instruments, whether it's in concertos or solo voices in operas. In each kind of music, the spotlight is on one personality that's, that's backed up by, by a, a larger group, but there's a spotlight. So, and it helps in that situation, the Mozart's greatest personal gift is for melody. He got the concerto form, he understood concertos in a way that Haydn, for all of his brilliance, never really did. Even though Haydn did write some famous concertos for cello and the trumpet. Um, it's, there's a reason why we're going to hear a Mozart piano concerto tonight, beside the fact that it's Maestro Zuckerman who's picking, and, like, and he's always going to pick them with the Mozart. The, Mozart's piano concertos are, are just brilliant, they pop out at you. Haydn isn't never really a great player, and his job as Kapellmeister gave, uh, gave him uh, forces he can experiment with over time. It's the same orchestra every time he writes a symphony. Um, it's the same opera company. It's the same audience, the same small groups of string players. So he winds up thinking in terms of the ensemble, and he looks for all the different ways that you can change a given form and bend it into new shapes as you come back to it again and again. Haydn's strengths are in ensemble compositions symphonies in which the whole orchestra works together, and string quartets in which all of the music is boiled down to four equal voices. The fact that orchestras to this day play mostly symphonies, and the fact that string quartets are at the heart of small ensemble performance to this day are things that we owe to Haydn, because he's the guy who figured out how to make those forms sing. And it is Haydn's string quartets that brought the two men together. In 1781, 
Haydn publishes six new quartets, his Opus 33 quartets. Uh, he told his publisher, I'm sending you these things, and they are of, quote, a new and entirely special kind. Uh, to some extent, it's just marketing. And he's probably said everything is of new and special kind. But the Opus 33 quartets really were. Um, what they have is a kind of an extraordinarily compact approach to drama. Things happen very quickly in these quartets. Moods change quickly with very few wasted notes. Melodies start in one instrument and wind up being carried by another, which was very unusual at that time. And there's one piece that starts in a very happy major key, kind of a jaunty little tune, and almost immediately, within a few bars, it turns out to be in a very dark, dangerous-sounding minor key. And when you get there, you realize it was always in a minor key, and Haydn has tricked you before the piece really has even begun. To this day, music students pore over the scores of the Opus 33 quartets, looking for hints, looking for ways to do things uh, right, but in a surprising way. Now, those quartets hit Mozart when he heard them like a ton of bricks. He'd been following Haydn from a distance, and by now they had probably already met in Vienna. But now Mozart takes Haydn's six new and special quartets as an explicit model. He sets out to write six quartets of his own. And Mozart, this prodigy who could improvise better than other men could write their own music, the great virtuoso, the impudent freelancer who hates to be tied down, he takes three years to finish his own set of quartets. Three years, that's how much this project meant to him. In 1785, he invites Haydn to meet his father, who's visiting, but his real uh, object is to get Haydn to check out his new quartets and see whether they're up to Haydn's standards. Um, on one night, as a matter of fact, they all get together in Mozart's residence, and they play three of Mozart's new quartets together. And when the music is done, Haydn takes Leopold Mozart aside, and he says to him another one of his famous quotes. I tell you, Mr. Mozart, before God and as an honest man, that your son is the greatest composer I know, either personally or by reputation. He has taste and, moreover, the greatest possible knowledge of the science of composition. Um, you know, a few years ago, Tony Bennett, the great singer, went on tour with uh, Katie Lang and uh, Diana Krall, who will be singing here in a few weeks. And in jazz circles, it's fashionable to sometimes look down your nose at Katie Lang and Diana Krall. Uh, they're not real jazz singers, they're just, you know. My answer to that is Tony Bennett thought they were good enough. And so for me, the debate is over. I have the same reaction to anyone uh, who says... Uh, Mozart's music is too light, it's too flighty, it's too this, it's too that. It's like, well, Haydn said he had the greatest possible knowledge of the science of composition, and if anyone is a scientist of composition, it's Haydn. So that's the end of the debate. It's a very interesting uh, uh, way to express this sentiment. Consider the way the sentence is constructed. Haydn wants to tell Mozart's father that this just isn't just idle praise. He's not saying, hey, I like your kid. So he says he's saying this before God. Remember that Haydn wrote in nomine dei, in the name of God, at the top of every piece of music he ever wrote. And at the bottom of everything he ever wrote, he wrote laus dei, praise be to God. So when he says, I'm saying this before God and as an honest man, he's saying, I mean this. Mozart also wanted the world to know that he was serious about Haydn. So when he published his six quartets, he included a dedication page with great florid script in Italian, a language that both of these guys had in common. And here's what he said. A father, having resolved to send his sons out into the great world, finds it advisable to entrust them to the protection and guidance of a highly celebrated man, the more so since this man, by a stroke of luck, 
is his best friend. Here then, celebrated man, and my dearest friend are my six sons, these six quartets. You yourself, dearest friend, during your last sojourn in this capital, in Vienna, expressed to me your satisfaction with these works. This, your approval, encourages me more than anything else. From this moment on, I cede to you all my rights over these quartets. I pray you to be indulgent to their mistakes, which a father's partial eye may have overlooked. From the bottom of my heart, I am, dearest friend, your most sincere friend, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. This is the guy who was such a jerk that he couldn't hold a steady job. And this is the, this is the way he addresses Haydn before the world. From this point on, the two men were seeing each other pretty much all the time, whenever they were both in Vienna. They're both perfectly capable of being harsh or dismissive toward other musicians. I love uh, an entry in Haydn's diaries near the end of his life where he says, I went to see so-and-so's concert at Ranelagh Garden. He played like a pig. Um, <laughs> but there's never any evidence that either of them was anything but very protective and kind of... Uh, kind of um, uh, well, protective towards the other. One time Mozart's hanging out with the cats uh, somewhere and, and one guy starts to run down a new piece by Haydn. He says, well, you know at bar 44 where he goes off this, I wouldn't have done it that way. And Mozart says, neither would I. And do you know why? Because neither you or I would have had such an excellent idea. In a famous letter in 1787, Haydn actually turns down business because he would rather give some work to Mozart. A promoter in Prague wanted to stage one of Haydn's operas. He'd written a whole bunch of operas, and I've listened to them on records. They're funny, they're full of surprises, they give a lot of singers a lot of interesting things to do. But Haydn said that his operas weren't good enough. Sure, you can have one of my operas, he says to this promoter in Prague, for yourself alone to play in private. But if you intend to produce it on the stage at Prague, in that case, I cannot comply with your wish. He told him that the operas he wrote for the court of Esterhazy were full of little in-jokes that only the people who were there would understand. Uh, maybe, he says, uh, you might be able to get me to write something new which would be appropriate to your circumstances in Prague. This sounds like the part of the letter where the guy starts fishing for new business. But then he shuts that down. He says, even then I should be risking a good deal. For scarcely any man can brook comparison with the great Mozart. And then Haydn wrote a bit about how Prague should watch out for this guy and be good to Mozart and, to, and, 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 and hold him close. And he wrote that the world wasn't doing enough of that. He said, it enrages me to think that this incomparable Mozart is not yet engaged by some imperial or royal court. Forgive me if I lose my head, but I love the man so dearly. There is one more chapter in this extraordinary story. Then I'm going to play a little bit of music and then we'll then some other guys are going to play some other music. Uh, in some ways, what happens next is my favorite part, even though it's not really about both of them. In September of 1790, something big happened in the life of Haydn. His employer of 30 years, Nicholas Esterhazy, passed away. And the new head of the household, who was a less imaginative fellow and who frankly had some debts to pay down, fired almost the entire musical company at the Great Palace. He did keep Haydn, one or two others on, on a, on a pension, uh, and to have them at hand if, in case someone needed to come up with some music quickly. Um, the old man was going to be comfortable now with whatever he did. How do you react to an event like this? By this point, Haydn is 58 years old, at an age when most men didn't live that long, and certainly not much longer. He'd been comfortable at Eisenstadt and Esterhazy for almost a lifetime, and 
What he does, though, is make a beeline for the biggest international market he can find. Nicholas Esterhazy dies in September. By December, Haydn's on his way to London. He must, have, he must have been burning to get out and to actually see the, the rest of the world, enjoying his music for all of those years, and as soon as he gets his chance, he takes it. He did stop in Bonn to give some lessons to a kid named Ludwig von Beethoven, <laughs> but first he stopped in Vienna. He says to Mozart, I'm going to London. Mozart's been to London many times. Mozart's nervous. He says, but Papa, you do not know the ways of the world, and you don't speak a word of English. Haydn reassures him. Ah, my language is understood around the world. In other words, don't you worry about me, kid. And Haydn and Mozart didn't have to worry. Some other time, I sure hope I can tell you everything about Haydn's adventures in London. It is a whole late career renaissance for him. He writes his greatest symphonies there. You'll be hearing one of them tonight. He's the focus of an extravagant concert for all of London society every Friday night for months. He gets rich. He wrote in his diary, Tonight I made 4,000 florins. Such a thing is only possible in England. <laughs> the newspapers write editorials begging him to move there. And he makes plans to come back. He makes plans to come back with Mozart. It would have been the greatest series of concerts in history up until the Beatles. Uh, but while Haydn was still in London, he learned that Mozart had died. Um, I guess the only quota we can offer for this is that many years later, when Haydn died, uh, the music that was played at his funeral was Mozart's Requiem. Many years after that, when Beethoven died, the music that was played at Beethoven's funeral was Mozart's Requiem. And many years after that, when Chopin died, the music that was played at his funeral was Mozart's Requiem. So if I was, took a long, long time coming around to the charms of Mozart, I was wrong. I'm outvoted. Uh, and um, I will now show you some of the things I like about the music of these guys. Um, here is a piece from one of uh, Mozart's piano sonatas. Um, it's a short piece. All these, all these excerpts are like a minute long. I don't want to wear you out before the, 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 the real fun. But... Um, as, as this excerpt begins, we're coming to a cadence. The phrase seems to be ending. It's like, dum da dun da dun 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 Except Mozart finds a way to kind of pull a thread out and keep it going. And then he finds a way to pull another thread out and keep it going. And this simple little cadence starts to seem like a zombie in a horror movie. And you shoot it and it falls down, but it gets back up again. And it falls down and gets back up again. And in only about a minute's worth of music, I hope you can begin to get a sense of just the extraordinary imagination that this guy had. Thank you. 
it's like it's it's like a magic act where the guys he, he pulls a rabbit out of the hat and then he pulls a Volkswagen and then he pulls you know like you, what what's in that hat you know um, Mozart was 22 when he wrote that and it's young man music he's showing off but it's uh, it's extraordinary I will show you some more Mozart um, this is from the piano this is a shorter excerpt uh, it's from the piano concerto that you hear tonight number 22. And it's really only the first few bars of the uh, orchestra playing. And um, I want to show you just how quickly the moods can change. So it starts out big and triumphant, and here's, you know, here's, the, here's the band, we're here to play. And then almost immediately is this second theme that's very wistful and nostalgic and uh, bittersweet, uh, almost mournful. And then they play the triumphant star stuff, and then they go back to the wistful stuff, and it's the piano player Jonathan Biss, who will be playing here later this season, has talked about this thing that Mozart has, where if you, if you simply listen to how generally pleasant it all is, you'll miss the extraordinary poignancy of the changes of mood that, that he can get out of his music. And really, the rest of that movement of the concerto is almost like a battle between those two moods. It's a, it's a manic-depressive kind of piece, but in, in, a, in, a, in a lovely, lovely way. Um, now, Haydn uh, has to get some of his, too. This, is from, this first piece is from Haydn's Symphony Number no. 99. It's one of his uh, first pieces he wrote in London. And um, what I like about it is, again, it's, 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 it's one damn thing after another. It, it's just, it's just action-packed, this one minute of music I'm going to play for you. And the other thing that really struck me as I was playing this in my car the other day, wondering what I would show you guys, is um, somebody once said the Brahms' first symphony, they were listening to Brahms' first symphony, they said, this is Beethoven's 10th symphony. It is great enough to stand next to Beethoven's 9. Uh, I listen to this from Haydn, and I think it is, um, it is like Beethoven minus 1. It is... It's a worthy, immediate predecessor of the, of, the, of the big, sweeping symphonies that Beethoven wrote. And you think of Haydn as this kind of genteel, courtly fellow. By the end of his career, he was really swinging for the fences.
there's so much stuff in there. There's, there's parts of it that sound like Offenbach, like a can-can. There's stuff in there, that kind of offbeat, back-and-forth seesaw thing that, to me, gives Beethoven a license to do some of the stuff he was doing in his Seventh Symphony. Um, and the great thing about Haydn is you wrote 104 symphonies, and it's all killer, no filler. There's, every time you listen to a new symphony, it's, it sounds pretty like the last one did, and you're always going to forget which number is which and so on. But uh, he actually finds something new to do with every one of them. Some, some of them are actually kind of hidden little flute concertos, and some of them have a piece for the cello that's, that's, that's more lovely than most of the cello, uh, specific cello sonatas and concertos that you're going to hear. And in symphony number 100, uh, they have this big, grand introduction, you know, here's the symphony and we're going to play a symphony for you. But then he has the theme announced by this little kind of pickup band of flutes and oboes, uh, that sounds like uh, some kids came in off the street. And then the symphony picks up this, the, or the rest of the orchestra picks up this, this little party theme and turns it into a more traditional symphony. It's a very surprising moment, which I have ruined for you by telling you what to expect, but here it is anyway. <laughs> That's all from me. These are the trick bags that geniuses of historic level have and bring to their art. And these are the talents that were so great that they caused the other greatest talents of their time to come and uh, start a really wonderful friendship. Uh, it, we're going to be celebrating it all week here at the NAC. I'm going to go with you and take my seat and uh, listen to the pros. And I really want to thank you for coming out to hear me talk. Thank you. That's all for this edition of the NACOcast. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nacpodcasts.ca, where you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find this podcast as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. So until next time, this is Christopher Millard for the new media team here at the National Arts Centre in Ottawa. <laughs>